We're following the journey of the man considered by Christians to be the father of faith. This man is named Abram, and in today's study, we're going to see his name change to that by which he is better known, Abraham. And as we follow his story through the book of Genesis, we see him face one test after another in the area of faith, trusting in God. And Abraham's journey is going to give us lots of encouragement and instruction as we'll see much of ourselves in his journey of faith, in his challenges, his failures, and thankfully, even in his victories. In last week's study, we saw Abram make a catastrophic mistake when he chose expedience over obedience. In other words, he chose the quick solution instead of obeying the Lord and waiting for the Lord's solution to the problem. And the result of that misjudgment and that sin was the birth of his first son, Ishmael, through a surrogate wife, so to speak, named Hagar, an Egyptian maidservant of Abram's real wife, Sarai. This week, it's Father's Day, as I said, and because the Lord seems to delight in doing this sort of thing to me. We happen to be speaking today primarily about the issue of circumcision because it just lines up perfectly, I guess, in the Lord's mind. I promise I haven't been planning this for months because I thought it would be really powerful if we combined Father's Day and circumcision. This wasn't in the planning at all. So (laughs) years in advance, Dave, years in advance, the Lord is going to ask Abram to deal with a sensitive area of life, and there's going to be a lot more for us to learn here than you might think. So let's jump in. Chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. It has been 14 years since we last have a record of the Lord speaking to Abram. And now the Lord shows up in a visceral, tangible way and begins speaking to him once again. And the Lord begins by repeating a promise he made to Abram all the way back when they first interacted, that he would make him into the father of many, many people, the father of a nation, the father of a multitude. Verse 3, then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father to many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I, and we're going to start underlining the word I everywhere it shows up. For I have made you a father of many nations. God says your name has been Abram, which means exalted father, but I'm changing your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. So apparently things were about to really start happening here. And this won't be, as you might know, the only time in scripture when God will change a person's name to line up with a new identity they have in him. Simon, the disciple, will become Peter, which means a rock. So he's going to become someone who instead of being intimidated and shifting his allegiances is going to become a steady, dependable rock of a person. Levi, the tax collector and the disciple, will have his name changed to Matthew, meaning gift of God, which nobody ever referred to a tax collector as. The Lord changes names when he wants someone's view of themselves to line up with how he sees them. And the Lord always sees us 
in our fullest potential because he knows how we're going to end up one day when we arrive in his presence. He sees us as who we are destined to become in Jesus and he interacts with us that way. For the Christian, our identity comes from what the word of God tells us about who we are and who we are becoming. As Christians, we're not defined even by what we do or what others say about us. We're defined by God who loved us and adopted us into his family. God defines who we are. And after giving him a new name, the Lord keeps speaking to Abraham. In verse six, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. The legendary kings David and Solomon would come from Abraham's family line, but most importantly, the king of kings, Jesus, would as well. Verse seven, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an underline everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you and then underline the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an, now he's gonna say it again because he doesn't want you to miss it, as a what? An everlasting possession. And I will be their God. As we've talked about before, God's promises and commitments to the Jewish people are in God's own words, eternal. We stand with the Jewish people because we know from the Bible that God has a plan to redeem them to himself just before Jesus returns to the earth at the second coming. We stand with the political nation of Israel because God says he's given them the land, including Gaza, the Golan Heights, and even the Sinai Peninsula. And if you're a Christian, God's opinion on the division of Middle Eastern real estate trumps the opinion of the United Nations. No pun intended. And as we've said before, if people wanna try and say, yeah, well those promises are for spiritual Israel, and now the church is spiritual Israel, that person would have to explain then why after almost 2,000 years, God brought ethnic Israel back into the land so that they could once again become political Israel and why he's continued to miraculously protect and preserve them for the last 70 years. The history of Israel over these last 70 years proves that this covenant was for ethnic and political Israel. Why do we know that? Because he's done it. He's actually done it. He's brought them back into the land. Now let me say this, while the Jews are ethnic Israel, they are political Israel, the church is spiritual Israel. The New Testament refers to us that way, but the church, spiritual Israel, has not replaced ethnic and political Israel. They're two different entities in scriptures with two different destinies and very different prophecies spoken about them as two groups. Verse nine, and God said to Abraham, as for you, so he's saying, I, 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 I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, now he's gonna say, for you, here's your part, here's your part in it. As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. So before we go on, you have to imagine the scene in, in your mind's eye. We know this is a powerful moment because we're told back in verse three that God's presence made 
Abraham fall on his face. It's been 14 years and, and now he's overwhelmed by the presence of God. And then the Lord begins to speak to Abraham and everything the Lord has to say is, is just wonderful. It's just one blessing after another and Abraham is just being overwhelmed by the goodness of God. He's probably got tears of joy streaming down his face as the kindness of God just hits him in wave after wave after wave and God says, Abraham, I've got a covenant to make with you and he says, that's right, Lord, I thought you had forgotten, but of course you didn't because you're so good, God. I'm going to give you more descendants than you can count, Abraham. That's still happening, Lord? Oh, thank you so much. In fact, you're going to have so many descendants, you're going to need a new name. A new name? Oh, praise you, Lord. What a blessing. And your kids are going to be incredible. In fact, kings are going to come from your family lion, Abraham. You mean I'm a royal family? Oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. And everything I'm promising you, Abraham, is going to be done because I'm going to keep my promises. It won't even depend on what your descendants do. I'm going to be their God when all the dust settles. I'm going to give them even a special piece of land that's going to be theirs forever. Oh, Lord, this is too much. This is unbelievable. Now, Abraham, walk before me. Live in relationship with me and teach your family to do the same. I will, Lord, I will. And now God keeps speaking, verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. God says, and I'm going to give you and your descendants a special sign to indicate this covenant that I've made with you. Oh Lord, that sounds amazing. What's going to be the sign, Lord? What's the sign? Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. What? It's been 14 years since we've spoken? And this is what you've come to tell me? That's, that's, what, I, that's what I would have said. But, but Abraham, Abraham, I'd be like, what if we don't get the land? Then can we take the sign out of the deal but still get the rest? Sure, we can work something out, Lord. But, but Abraham knows better. He, he trusts the Lord by this point. He trusts the Lord, and the Lord keeps speaking to him, verse 12. He says, he who is eight days old, underline eight days old among you, shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So any male who is going to be a part of Abraham's household, any male who is going to be a part of God's people had to be circumcised. It was a requirement. Verse 15, then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarai means princess. But Sarah means noblewoman or wife of a king. The idea is that Sarai as well was getting a name upgrade. Verse 16, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? Abraham is not, is not laughing in disbelief. He's just, just laughing in amazement. He's saying, I don't know how you're going to do it, Lord, but sounds amazing. And 
the son that's being spoken about here will later be named Isaac, which literally means laughter. Verse 18, and Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. You see, very quickly, Abraham goes from overwhelming joy to realizing something that moves him very quickly into a state of brokenhearted sorrow because you see, him and his family have spent the last 14 years living under the impression that Ishmael was the son of promise, that God had sent them. They believed that it was through Ishmael that all of God's promises were going to be fulfilled. And they loved Ishmael the way anyone would love an only child who you've waited 85 years for. And now the Lord was dropping this bomb that Ishmael was not the son of promise. And that all of his promises would come through a son who would be born to Sarah, who would come from her body. And it seems like Abraham is, is likely responding by saying, Lord, do it through Ishmael. Let Ishmael be the son of promise. I love him. Fulfill all your promises through him. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But if you'll recall last week's study, Ishmael was the result of Abraham and Sarah failing to trust God and finding a sinful solution, a fleshly solution to their desire for a son. And the Lord was saying, that's not how I'm going to work. I've got my own plan for you, Abraham, as I told you at the beginning. Verse 19, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, literally 12 nations or 12 people groups, and I will make him a great nation. And we know, as we mentioned last week, that the descendants of Ishmael would go on to become the Arab people. So God still chooses to bless Ishmael, but not to the same degree as the child who would come from doing things the Lord's way. See, Romans 8.28 tells us that God will do something good out of every situation we create. Even the foolish, sinful ones, God will pull something good out of it, but those situations won't be blessed anywhere near as much as our lives would be if we would do things the Lord's way. If you marry a non-believer, God's still gonna do something good, but you're not gonna be blessed anywhere near as much as you would if you would have done things the Lord's way. There's gonna be challenges you wouldn't have to deal with if you had done things the Lord's way. Verse 21, but my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins, underline that very same day as God had said to him. That very same day as God had said to him. I wonder how that pitch went, you know? Gather around, boys. We're going to do an awesome team building exercise. Oh, you mean like matching t-shirts or coffee mugs or something like that? Mm, not quite. But first, let me share some exciting news, guys. God spoke to me 
And he's going to give me a son for my wife. And he's going to multiply my descendants. And you're all part of my household, so you're going to be blessed too. And God's going to give us a special land. And he's given us a special sign of the promise. Oh, it sounds awesome, Abraham. What's the sign? It's circumcision. And matching t-shirts. Then it would have been, it would have been difficult. Couldn't have been an easy sell. But, but they did it. They did it. And we'll talk more about this later. But what I notice is that Abraham had the credibility with what was likely at least a few thousand men in his household. He had the spiritual credibility to say, God's told us to do this. And they believed him. And they followed through. And they went along with it. Because Abraham had spiritual credibility. They had seen how God had blessed his life. And they believed him. Verse 24 Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, underline that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So Abraham does not delay to obey the Lord. He's learned the importance of obedience. And as soon as the Lord speaks, he now obeys. I won't ask for you to raise your hand, but how many of you would have been like, I'm going to pray on that for a while. I don't want to do anything hasty. Don't want to rush anything. I'm going to pray on that. 21 days, maybe 40 days. 40 is a biblical number of 40 days of prayer. If 40 is good, how good is a year of prayer? Amen. Let's seek the Lord, everybody. So, so let's take a look at this issue because this, this can seem like an awfully strange chapter if we don't dive into the meaning and the context behind circumcision. And I know that discussing this issue in depth is exactly why you came to church today. So, so make a note of this big idea and then we'll unpack it. Circumcision provided a physical example of a spiritual practice. Circumcision provided a physical example of a spiritual practice. When we enter into a relationship with God, it means God is now the Lord. He's now the master of our life. He becomes the one calling the shots. He becomes the highest priority, the director of our life. And in order to do that, we have to cut off some things from our life. Things like the desire to be first. The desire to be the one who calls the shots in our life. The desire to be our own Lord and master. And the New Testament describes this conflict between the Lord in our life and our own desires as the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. When you become a believer, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, takes up residence within you. But it is now at odds with what the Bible calls the flesh, that part of yourself that is from this fallen, broken, sinful world and still wants to sin all the time there's now this tension within us and when we enter into a relationship with God spirit comes in there's this new war between the God that is in us the Holy Spirit and the part of us our flesh that wants to be God in his letter to the church in Galatia these verses are going to be on your outline the Apostle Paul put it like this those who are Christ so those who belong to Jesus have crucified they've put to death the flesh with its passions and desires. Following Jesus means that every day our goal is to be led in what we do by the Spirit rather than the flesh, to listen to the Spirit rather than the flesh, to make decisions based on how the Spirit is leading us, not how the flesh is leading us. 
But like a zombie, our flesh rises from the dead every day to try and win the war against God's spirit in us. And every single day, we have to choose to put the flesh to death again, moment by moment, decision by decision. We have to choose to crucify it, as Paul said. That's why Paul, even the great apostle Paul, said, I die daily. He meant that every single day, He had to die to his flesh and instead live by the spirit that was within him. But all the way back in Genesis 17 where we're at today, the Lord was using circumcision as a picture of this reality. He had his people literally cut off a piece of their flesh to remind them that they belonged to the Lord and that we live for him, that they lived for him, not for their flesh. Are you tracking with me here? So make a note of this. Physical circumcision was a picture of dying to the flesh and living by the Spirit. Dying to the flesh and living by the Spirit. Now over time, the Jewish people lost sight of this and they began to believe that physical circumcision is what made them good with God. They began to believe that it was the physical mark that made them right with God, but that was never true. Circumcision was always intended to be a picture and a reminder of a spiritual truth. That's why in Romans 2, again on your outlines, Paul wrote, he is a Jew who is one, and then underline the word, inwardly, within himself. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit. As I hinted at earlier, the church is spiritual Israel. The church are God's people. And Paul says that God's people now are not marked by physical circumcision, but by spiritual circumcision. God's people live lives that are led by the spirit rather than the flesh. And in fact, even for ethnic and political Israel, this has always been God's goal and intent. All the way back in Deuteronomy 30, way back in the Old Testament, a couple of thousand years before Jesus comes to the earth, the Lord is making what's known as the Palestinian covenant with the nation of Israel. He's making them this promise and this covenant just before they enter the promised land. And the Lord speaks to them about a future time. It's actually going to be that time we talked about just before the second coming when Jesus will turn the hearts of the Jewish people back to the Lord. And this is what God says on your outlines. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So the implication there is God is saying, hey, listen, the day's coming when I'm going to change your heart because even though This is the great Shema, this saying that they would say all the time, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's part of it. Even though they would say this all the time, God is saying all the way back in Deuteronomy, you won't be able to do that until your heart is changed. Physical circumcision isn't going to make you love the Lord with all your heart and soul. You have to be spiritually set apart for the Lord. Even after Jesus died and rose again and left the earth, there were some Jews in the early church who felt that you had to be circumcised to be a real Christian, a real son of Abraham. And in Galatians again, Paul wrote this to put the issue to rest. He said, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
So Paul said, if you belong to Jesus, then his spirit dwells inside of you. And living by the spirit is what makes you a son of Abraham, not being physically circumcised. And while the Jews were confident that they were good with God because they were physically circumcised, Paul wrote about the church to the Philippians and he said, for we, that's the church, are the circumcision. We are the ones who belong to God, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, there's nothing any of us can do to our flesh that should make us confident that we're good with God. That whole idea has been proven a failure by the more than 2,000 years that Israel spent trying to serve God in the flesh and simply failing spectacularly over and over again. The only way to be right with God and to live for God is to be spiritually circumcised, to have Him change your heart and to live by the Spirit. That's a work that only God can do in us. And our part is to welcome that work in our lives, rejoice in what Jesus has done for us, and freely confess, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, freely confess that there's nothing good in our flesh. We owe it all to Jesus. That is one of the defining marks of a mature believer. The mature believer understands there's nothing good in my flesh. It's not like after I've served God for 30 years, my flesh starts becoming pretty good, and now I become naturally disposed towards doing good things. The mature believer understands, listen, there's nothing good in my flesh. The mature believer simply becomes more consistent at living by the Spirit and refusing to live by the flesh. Now, on a side note, can you just imagine how awkward altar calls would be if physical circumcision was still a requirement for everyone who became a believer who was a man. I mean, I'd be closing messages with, you know, if you're here today and you want to give your life to Jesus, just come forward, come to the front. We have volunteers ready to pray with you and perform a minor surgical procedure. Hallelujah. Just come forward, come down to the front, go into one of those booths with a, <laughs> you know, it'd be awkward to praise the Lord due to the violent screaming coming from the prayer ministry area, you know, so... Uh, any way you slice it, it would have been awkward. I'm sorry, I'll, I'll cut it out. I'll cut it out. So, um, for Abraham and all the men of his household, physical circumcision was a picture and a reminder of a spiritual truth. That God wanted them to live for him and not for their flesh. And while we might understand all that now, you might still be wondering, yeah, but why, why that? Why not like cut off a pinky finger or something like that? Why, why that specific part of the flesh? And there's a few different possibilities that Bible scholars point to because the Bible doesn't tell us specifically why it had to be that part of the flesh. But my personal belief and speculation is that it's most likely because when we talk about the flesh in the context of the way the Bible talks about the flesh, there's simply no part that is more fleshly than that part of a man. It has tremendous power to lead a man into sin. Probably more power than any other part of his body. And when you read about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, there's a pattern that emerges. The number one way the people of Israel, the men of Israel, get themselves into trouble over and over and over again is God tells them, do not marry with pagan cultures. I don't care how hot they are. Do not marry those women. Don't have anything to do with them. 
And then what happens every time? They see some of those women. They like what they see. They have sex with them. They marry them. And in the blink of an eye, like a week later, they've refused God, they've rejected God, and now they're worshiping false idols. Why? Because sex. Because sex. And there are those who simply point out, hey, if that part of a man is submitted to the Lord, that part, then the rest of him will probably follow. And I think there's a good degree of truth to that line of thinking, and that's likely why it had to be that part that God specified. Now, as a a point of interest, too, there's a quick scientific point I want to draw your attention to. Back in verse 12, we read something very interesting. God's instructions for circumcision specify the eighth day for the procedure. It says, he who is eight days old, I had you underline that, among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. And medical science now knows that vitamin K, which is a clotting agent, does not form in the body of an infant until somewhere between the fifth and seventh day. In other words, if you circumcised a child earlier than that, in the ancient world, they would have likely bled to death or at a minimum had some very, very serious medical issues. Now there's also another substance called prothrombin, which is also necessary for clotting in blood. And on the third day of an infant's life, it's only at about 30% of normal levels. On the eighth day of an infant's life, it peaks at 110% of normal levels before leveling off. So based on, on all this medical science, we now know that if you're going to circumcise a newborn baby, the very best time to do it would be on the eighth day, exactly when the Lord said to do it, thousands of years before science even had the means to confirm the medical reasons. And just in case you're thinking, maybe they figured it out by trial and error, I find that very hard to believe after the first baby would have bled to death on day one, the second baby bled to death on day two, the third on day three. I don't think by the time the sixth baby has died, they're saying, well, let's see what happens if we do it on the seventh day. I don't think that's very likely. No, the Lord knew what he was doing when he gave Abraham these instructions. The designer told Abraham the perfect time to do it and recorded it in the scriptures thousands of years before medical science discovered that it was indeed the best time to circumcise a child. And without getting into all the details, there's also all other kinds of health benefits that would have been amplified during this time in history as well. So make a note of this, and we'll point out a couple of practical lessons we can learn from the text today. Write this down and we'll unpack it. Anyone who follows Jesus will have to deal with their flesh repeatedly. Anyone who follows Jesus will have to deal with their flesh repeatedly. Part of following Jesus, when we first come to him and and then on a daily basis, is saying yes to him when he reveals something that's in our flesh that he wants us to cut out of our lives. Sometimes it's a small thing, like an attitude adjustment, but other times it might be something massive, like a specific relationship. Dealing with the flesh, especially when it's a big issue, is going to be painful and it's going to be difficult. But it's going to be necessary because like Abraham, we won't be able to go any further in our walk with the Lord until we take that step. This was Abraham's next step. He couldn't have gone on to his next step of faith with the Lord until he had obeyed the Lord at this step. The truth is that either we'll cut the flesh out of our lives, or the flesh will cut the Lord out of our life. 
And I'm not talking about losing your salvation. I'm talking about having a relationship with the Lord. It's real simple. And if you've been in church for any length of time, then you've probably seen it. A person will come, maybe they'll be new, and they'll be so excited about the Lord. Maybe they're a new believer. So excited about the Bible. So excited about worship. And then the Lord comes to that person and he says, okay, we need to deal with an issue. We need to deal with this part of your flesh. We need to cut this out of your life. And often it's a, it's a relationship that's not right. They're sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend before marriage and, and God says, we, we gotta deal with this. It's not my plan for your life. And that person says, no, I'm, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna do that, Lord. And very quickly you begin to notice their passion for the Lord just begin to dissipate. And it just begins to dissolve and fall away as their their heart hardens toward the Holy Spirit. Because here's the truth. Here's the truth. Nobody can stay passionate about the Lord while consistently disobeying Him. It's impossible. It's impossible. Nobody can stay passionate about the Lord while repeatedly refusing to obey Him. It's just not possible. Any male who was going to be a part of Abraham's household, any male who was going to be a part of God's people had to be circumcised. It was a requirement. There wasn't an option to say, you know, I, I love being a part of Abraham's household. I love the fellowship. I love the family environment. I love those sing songs that we have together. But you know what? Circumcision isn't for me. Part of the family, 100% I'm in. Circumcision, not up for that. If you were unwilling to move forward with making that covenant commitment, you simply would have been cut off from the family of Abraham's household, according to the instructions of the Lord. Likewise, there's no option for anyone to have a relationship with Jesus where they get to have the relationship but get to disobey him all the time. That's no option. There's no option in Scripture for believers to say, hey, listen, I love Jesus I love the idea of heaven, but I'm not into changing the way I live my life because of what his word says. That's just not for me. Jesus, yes, changing my lifestyle, no. That's not an option anywhere in the Bible, anywhere in the Bible. And I would just encourage you to, to really wrestle with this because in, in, in our modern view, we sort of have this viewpoint of there's two categories of Christians, right? There, there's casual Christians or cultural Christians, and then there's like devoted disciples of Jesus. There's this one group that they believe Jesus is God, you know, they believe the gospel, but it doesn't really have any impact on the way they live their life. And then there's these people who are disciples and, and, and they're really trying to live for God. He's changed their life. I would encourage you to at least wrestle with the question of, does this group over here, the cultural Christians, who are somehow Christians, but there's no evidence of that in their life, is there a group like that anywhere in the Bible that's described? And if so, what does the Bible say about them? I would really wrestle with that because I fear there are believers who are banking their eternity on the fact that they're part of this group. And it may very well be that this group doesn't exist in the Bible. There's only one kind of Christian, the kind whose life has been changed by Jesus. And so it doesn't mean you're perfect but I'm just saying if you become a believer and from the time you become a Christian, there's no change in your life. Are you actually a Christian? Did anything change? Did anything actually happen? I'm not even saying yes or no. I'm just saying we should wrestle with that.
We should wrestle with that in our own personal time with the Lord. You know, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, he's like, I'm doing everything I can to obey all the commands. And Jesus looks right through him and sees a life and a heart that is dominated by the pursuit and love of wealth. And Jesus says to him, yeah, but the one thing you still need to do, the one thing you've got to do so that God is actually number one in your life more than money, you've got to do something radical. You're going to have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you'll have what you're looking for. Then you'll have a relationship with the Lord. And the Bible says he walked away sad. He refused to do it because he wanted to follow Jesus, but he was unwilling to deal with his flesh. And Jesus doesn't chase after him and say, hang on though, there's another category if you're interested. There's this great category of believers where you can still be saved, but you don't have to actually change anything. You can keep all your money, keep loving money more than God, and still make it to heaven. Jesus doesn't do that. And I got to think that if that was an option, he would have offered it. Because the Bible says it's the will of God that none should perish. He wants everyone in heaven who can possibly get there. Nobody really has a problem with God's offer of free salvation. Nobody's like, you know what I hate about Christianity? The forgiveness, the peace, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the, the whole promise of an eternal inheritance, the adoption into the family of God. Oh, I can't stand the thought of ruling with Jesus forever and, and all of those benefits. People have an issue with the fact that along with all of that stuff comes the command from Jesus, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's the part where people have a problem. It's not the salvation. It's not the benefits. It's the part where Jesus says, I'm going to become your Lord, your master, and your life is going to be about following me. Now, please understand, again, we're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about what the goal of a person's life is. Is the goal to obey Jesus? Or is the goal to say, nah, I feel like I've got that fire insurance I was looking for. I'm going to heaven, so why not just do what I want? A real believer wants to obey Jesus. Write this down. Obedience to the Lord cannot wait on full understanding. Obedience to the Lord cannot wait on full understanding. Abraham didn't understand the full picture. He didn't understand the New Testament prophetic imagery he was enacting, yet he obeyed. Because if we wait for full understanding before we obey the Lord, we'll never obey him. Do you understand that? If we wait for full understanding, we'll never obey him. We have to reach the point where we're comfortable with the reality that he is God and we are not. In the book of Isaiah, I put it on your outlines, the Lord famously says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think about this. When we refuse to obey the Lord, unless we have full understanding, what we're saying is, I will not obey the Lord until he gives me the same mental and intellectual capacity that he has. That's what we're saying. Till I am God's mental and intellectual equal so that I have the same level of understanding he has, I'm not going to obey. That's not going to happen. It can't happen because your head would explode. It, it's absolutely impossible. 
part of what makes God God is that he knows things we don't know. He's higher and greater than we are. He sees all of the future, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. So every believer must reach the place of faith where we simply trust in the character of our Heavenly Father. You see, my two-year-old daughter, little Lolo, she doesn't understand things anywhere close to the same way I do. But she does know that I love her. And she can obey based on that. And the same is true of our interactions with our Heavenly Father. No, we don't have the intellectual capacity to understand everything the way He does, but we do have the capacity to understand that He loves us. We do have the capacity to understand and know His character. We don't need to know all the details of the plan. We just need to know who's making the plan. And it's our Heavenly Father who loves us, who only ever does what's best for us. And that's all we need to know. Don't wait until you completely understand. When you've got a clear word from the Lord and you know what he's asked you to do, obey him because you know his character. You understand his character. Write this down because the reality is that delayed obedience is simply disobedience. Delayed obedience is simply disobedience. If you've got children, I don't need to explain this to you, do I? Delayed obedience is just disobedience. I was putting my shoes on. I sent you to do it 30 minutes ago. I was technically obeying. No, you weren't. Abraham had learned, you see, by this point in time, the importance of obeying the Lord quickly. He had learned that, that, that once you understand what the Lord wants you to do, delayed obedience is simply disobedience. And if you're a believer, it is a serious, serious thing to have clarity on what the Lord wants you to do, to know what he wants you to do, and yet to still say, no, Lord, I will not do that. That is a, a serious, serious thing to tell the God of the universe, no, I'm not going to do it. The evidence of faith is, is not perfect obedience to the Lord. The evidence of faith is a desire to obey the Lord. You can fail like me all the time every day, but the desire is there. I want to. I want to obey the Lord. You might struggle with it. You might not do it perfectly, but you should want to do it. You should be moving forward in obedience as best you can. It's a serious thing to say, I know what the Lord wants me to do. I'm just not going to do it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And Abraham had the faith to obey God in something difficult because he had obeyed the Lord in other simpler things before this. Did you notice if you've been with us in our journey in the book of Genesis, God didn't start with this. He didn't say, hey Abraham, I am the Lord, the God Almighty of heaven and earth. Grab a knife and circumcise yourself. That wasn't the introduction. They had walked together a while before this. They'd been through some stuff. The Lord had told Abraham to do some much simpler things like leaving one city and moving to another one. The way you get to the place of radical faith is by saying yes to the Lord every time he asks you to trust him. And then what you find is that over time he'll ask you to trust him with bigger and bigger things. That's how you develop radical faith. Faith builds upon faith. And then as I mentioned, we noticed too that Abraham had the credibility with his household to get them to follow his lead on this because they too had seen God come through for Abraham when Abraham had stepped out in faith before. Dads especially, dads especially. 
when the Lord or life puts you in a situation where great faith is needed, will you have the track record of faith in your life? The track record of seeing God move through your faith that will cause your family to follow your lead? When the heat is on and there's a crisis and you tell your family, do not worry. Remember how the Lord has taken care of us before. Are you going to be able to do that? And they're going to say, you're right. Or when you say, do not worry, the Lord will take care of us. Are they going to say, what are you talking about? That's never happened. Now is the time to panic. You're out of your mind. You're delusional. What's the response going to be from your family? Write this down. Abraham's walk with God had enough credibility that others followed his lead and trusted God in a radical way. Others followed his lead and trusted God in a radical way. He had enough credibility, enough credibility. Dads, lead your family in faith. Lead them in obedience to the Lord. You don't need to take a poll. You don't need to do a survey when you know what the Lord's word says. You don't need to ask your family, do you guys want to obey the Lord? I just thought I'd take the temperature in the room. No, we're going to sin? Okay, let's do that together. Don't do that. You notice that Abraham didn't ask for Ishmael's opinion. He didn't say, hey, so, fun story. There's this thing called circumcision. He just said, he said, this is what we're doing. We're obeying the Lord. You might not like it now, but I'm your father, and I know that in the long run, this is the best thing I can do for you, so this is what we're doing. Lead your family, Dad. Your kids need a father much more than they need a friend. Can I say that again? Your kids need a father much more than they need a friend. They're going to have other friends. You're probably going to be their only earthly father. And their friends are probably not going to sit them down and lead them in the way of the Lord in some of life's toughest moments. That's what you're for. That's why God put you in charge of your family and asked you to lead. Don't drop the ball on that just because it's hard or it's awkward or it's difficult. And lastly, don't you love that when he's 99 years old, the Lord is still challenging Abraham to grow in faith? He calls Abraham to walk with him and literally be perfect. The idea is, okay, Abraham, now that you're 99, we need to start getting serious about your walk with me. Why would the Lord do that? Because it's about eternity. It's about eternity. This life here is preparation for eternity. So what we do with this life every day matters enormously. However old you are, the Lord doesn't want to waste a day. The goal is not retiring and then simply passing time until your body gives out and you graduate to glory. God wants to do something to grow your faith, to make you more like Jesus every single day. God's not giving up on your spiritual development ever. He's going to be working on you in the hospital up to your last breath. So make sure that you don't give up on your own spiritual development. Make sure you don't say, well, I guess I've arrived. You can check out now. That's what the Lord loved about Abraham. 
Abraham's response was, okay, let's do it. You know what Abraham didn't do? He didn't say, you know what, Lord, you're right. That next generation, those young people, they need to get serious about following you. They need to be circumcised. They need to not be led by the flesh. They need to pursue you passionately. He didn't do that. Abraham said, I'm in. I'm in. Let's do this. And as we've said before, our spiritual passion is supposed to increase with age and time. As we learn more and more about the Lord. You know, passion for Jesus is not a young man or a young woman's game. Real passion for the Lord is the result of walking through life with Jesus. Loving him more deeply because you've been through some stuff with him. He's walked with you through some difficult seasons. And we see that in the life of Abraham. Make a note of this. A greater number of years walking with the Lord should result in a greater amount of passion for the Lord. A greater number of years walking with the Lord should result in a greater amount of passion for the Lord. For the Lord. I'm going to wrap up by saying this. We have the advantage of having the rest of Abraham's story recorded in the Bible. So we know how everything turned out. We can actually look and see, man, how did this circumcision thing work out for them? How did obeying the Lord pan out? How did dealing with the flesh pay off for Abraham? Did he regret it later? What we find is that all it did was lead to incredible blessing in his life. Incredible blessing. Here's what we forget. When God asks us to cut something out of our life, it's always for our benefit. Always. I think there's some part of us sometimes that, that still holds on to this idea of, you know, maybe the Lord is just asking me to cut this out of my life as like some sort of sacrifice to him or something like that. Like he knows I really enjoy this and this would be really fun, so he's asking me not to do this as some sort of sacrifice to appease him. And we forget that that's, that's not how God works. There was one sacrifice made for us, the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. He's the only sacrifice that needed to be made for us. So when God asks us to cut something out of our life, he's not demanding an offering or a sacrifice to appease him or, or earn his good graces or his favor. He's asking us to do something for our benefit. It's not because he wants us to miss out on something. It's because there's something he wants to do for us and our flesh is getting in the way. So if you need to deal with an area of your life, if you need to deal with the flesh in some way, do it. Do it now. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Trust God. Don't miss out. Go higher. Go deeper in your relationship with the Lord. Don't miss out. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the example of your word. And, and thank you that you reveal to us the truth that when you ask us to take steps that are sometimes painful, sometimes difficult, it's only ever because it's the very best thing for us. Father, we don't have the mind, we don't have the ability to think and understand things on your level, but we do have the capacity to know your character. And we have seen enough to know that you are a God who loves us because you laid down your life for us and died in our place. 
we all have the ability to understand that you love us in a way that is selfless and in a way that does what's best for us. So Father, we just agree and acknowledge and confess that anything that you would ask us to cut out of our lives is for our good because you love us and you don't want us to miss out on what is best. Any relationship you're asking us to cut out, it's because there's something better you want to do. Anything we're using as a coping mechanism, it's because there's a greater peace, a deeper peace that you want to give us. Anything that's giving us artificial fleeting happiness, it's, it's because you want to give us a deep-seated joy that can't be shaken by anything happening in our lives. Jesus, help us to trust you. We don't need any more evidence that you're good. We don't need any more evidence that you love us. Help us to believe, Lord. And if you're asking us to cut off any part of our flesh, any part of our fleshly life, anything that's getting in the way, Lord, may we obey this evening quickly. May we trust you and honor you with the obedience that you deserve, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.